Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Well, tonight we're going to be discussing uh, a Christian perspective on mental illness. Uh, and one of the first things that we need to acknowledge uh, is this is just a difficult subject. Uh, and it's really difficult in two ways. Uh, it's difficult on the one hand uh, because it's complex. There are so many different things that go in the basket of mental illness and mental health. Uh, And they don't all seem like they should belong in the same basket, but they kind of do. And and we look in there, and and we're not quite exactly sure how to sort our laundry. But then it's also difficult uh, because it's very personal. Uh, Rarely do we come to this subject as if it were merely an abstract idea. Uh, We come to it because a loved one, a family member, a friend, or maybe ourselves, uh, receive a diagnosis like ADD. Uh, major depressive episode, uh, bipolar, an addiction. Uh, and we, we want to know what to do with that. Sometimes we hear those labels uh, and they come across as a safe haven of explanation. Uh, finally, somebody understands. This something explains what I'm going through. There's a word for my experience. Um, sometimes it carries a stigma. And we just think, oh no, what does this mean? What if people find out? Um, Other times, it's just a mystery, uh, and we don't know uh, what it means. um, And then we get to the fact that, um, you know, how do we discuss this subject in the church? And if we don't discuss it, uh, what happens? Well, people hurt in silence. Uh, They search for answers. They have community. They have people that they're doing life with. But there's this certain part over here that's just off limits. And whenever we have a secret, uh, there's something that always goes with secrets. Uh, And that's shame. And it begins to be something that cuts us off from the kind of community uh, that we have. Uh, Now tonight, um, I hope my ambitions are relatively humble. Uh, I want to offer uh, a perspective This is not the end-all, be-all perspectives on mental illness. I don't even want you to feel like this is the official summit position uh, on mental illness, as if this is where you have to agree with us totally and completely in order to be in good fellowship with our church. Uh, This does give you a feel for our counseling ministry and where we're coming from. Uh, We're talking about uh, a perspective on, um, you know, it is... There are going to be other people. We're going to bring many of them up in the panel discussion that have different areas of expertise and experience uh, that will offer other perspectives that are needed voices uh, on this subject. Uh, In terms of trying to define it, uh, I'm going to defer that to a little later uh, in our time together. Uh, But I will give you a guiding assumption, uh, one that I think many of you would wonder about in terms of whose team is this guy on? Uh, what, what agenda does he have? Where is he trying to move this conversation? Uh, and, and here is one of my guiding assumptions. I'm assuming that there are a relatively equal number of people who avoid getting help, uh, whether that be counseling or medication, because of the stigma of mental illness, as there are people who use the labels of mental illness as a crutch to avoid taking responsibility for important choices in their life. Uh, And I think that is a a both-and side of the discussion. There are times when people just, the stigma is so strong, they they don't want to reach out for help that they really would benefit from. But then there are times when the explanations become so all-encompassing that they begin to undermine responsibility. Uh, And hopefully we begin to see how do we mediate both sides of that being realities? Now, uh, in terms of how to listen to this presentation, if I could give you three handles uh, that would be kind of the key takeaway points when you go, when I listen and there's so much information and I'm not going to remember all of this, I'm glad that you gave us such extensive handouts because I don't want to have to write it all down. 
there's really three points in this uh, that I'd like for you to be able to walk away with. One, uh, we're going to get to a Venn diagram on page 7. I'd like for you to feel comfortable with that. Uh, I'd like for you to get an intuitive sense of why we chose those three circles and explain them the way that we did. Um, I'd like for you to be comfortable with the question of medication as it relates to mental illness. Not because I think it is the biggest and most important question that's out there, but because it's the one that I think captures our attention and so many of the issues that, that make us apprehensive about engaging counseling or engaging the discussion about mental illness, I think if we untie the knot a little bit about medication, then we unravel a lot of those other issues uh, significantly. And then third, I'd like for us to be able to think through how do we as a church care for one another well uh, in a subject area uh, like that of mental illness. Now we ask the question, where do you begin on a journey like this? And I don't think we begin with answers. I don't even think we begin with definitions. I think we begin with questions. Uh, one of my favorite counselors is a man by the name of David Pallison. Uh, he makes the statement, we live and die based on the questions we ask. Questions are not neutral. They take us somewhere. Questions make certain things very relevant and obvious, and they make other things seem less relevant and not obvious. And so what I'd like to do is, you're going to see I've given you way more questions than we're going to say out loud, but I want us to use some questions just to till the soil. Some of these questions, based on whatever perception you have of the mental illness discussion, are going to feel very friendly to you. You're going to go, yes, these are the kinds of questions that I ask. Other questions, you're going, I I'm not sure that's the question that comes from the angle that I tend to think of this. I want us to be able to say all of these questions are good and important questions. So we ask things like this. Is mental illness a flaw in character or chemistry? Is that even the best way to ask the question? When we take that kind of either-or posture, and we don't allow for other explanations, or those two become mutually exclusive, what do we lose in the conversation? Or, why do we think that the genetic influences, think of genetic influences, as if they negate the role of our personal will or personal choice? Because even when you look at rehab facilities, that may take uh, the most strong position on addiction as disease, they still appeal to the will as a key part of sobriety. I mean, think about it. Nobody gets kicked out of a cancer ward for getting sicker. But if you relapse enough times and don't show a will to change, even in a rehab facility where there is a strong appeal to a disease model, they will still say, you're not ready for change. There's something going on in the will that is, ver that is important for sobriety. And so it, it's not as if those two things have to be mutually exclusive. Or how about this? Uh, we take the modern psychological proverb. Uh, our genes load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. And we ask the question, Where's the person? Yes, I'm a body. I have genetics. Those things influence me greatly. I look like my father and my boys look strangely like me. There is something about genetics that influences a lot. And my environment influences me. But then there's also this person. There is somebody. There is that little voice in my head. There is will and choice and influence. And oftentimes in the discussion... Uh, we act as if two out of three ain't bad. And we've got to have an understanding of all three. Or what about this question? What percentage of those who struggle with normal sorrow are labeled as being clinically depressed? Or the flip side of that question, what percentage of those uh, who think their sorrow uh, is normal are actually clinically depressed? And if you really want to make your head spin, how do we communicate effectively when the same word, i.e. depression, has both a clinical and a popular usage? Or what about this? Would we want to eradicate all anxiety and depression if we could? What would we lose if we did? What facets 
of compassion and concern and other good qualities of being made in the image of God would be erased if we removed the capacity for depression and anxiety. Not that depression and anxiety are the only forms of mental illness, but just using that as a particular example. Or how about this question? Can we have a weak brain? And again, simply there, I don't mean to be derogatory, but, but a brain that is given to problematic emotions, maybe difficulty discerning reality, and a strong soul. Uh, and have a weak brain and still have a soul uh, with a deep and genuine love for God. Well, if we say yes to this question in areas like intelligence, there's no sense in which we say if you have a low IQ, then you have to have a low love for God. Why, if we don't say that about intelligence, why would we say that about these other areas? Again, for it to be an official summit presentation, uh, you have to quote either C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, or Charles Haddon Spurgeon. If you don't, you get Dr. Day's vacation. I don't know if you knew that. So in order to protect my mental health day, here's our uh, C.S. Lewis quote. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says, most of man's psychological makeup is probably due to his body. Again, C.S. Lewis, he's a theologian, he's not a, uh, a psychologist, but he's saying it probably is due to our body. When his body dies, all of that will fall off of him. And the real central man, the thing that chose, the thing that made the best or worst of his raw material, will stand naked. All sorts of nice things uh, we thought to be our own, but which were really due to a good digestion, and there he just means physical makeup, he's not talking about our tummies, um, will fall off. All sorts of nasty things which were due to complexes and bad health will fall off of others. We shall then, for the first time, see um, everyone as he really was. And there will be surprises. Um, now, is your head spinning yet? Uh, there's a whole no If you haven't had enough questions and you go, no, just hit me again. You can read those extra questions, but we'll skip to the, the last question here at the top of page 4. How much should we expect conversion and normal sanctification, uh, that is just our spiritual maturity, to impact mental illness? You know, outside of medical interventions, uh, most secular treatments for mental illness focus on healthy thinking, healthy choices, and healthy relationships. So how much should a Christian expect sound doctrine, righteous living, and biblical community to impact their struggles with mental illness? Now, if you ask me, what am I supposed to get from all of these questions except for a headache? Um, my answer would be humility. What do we get when we ask good questions? We grow humble. We slow ourselves down. We're able to look at things from additional angles. Uh, and I think that humility is represented well uh, in this quote from David Murray. He said, It is very likely that in the future, with increased research into depression and also increased understanding of the Bible's teaching, much of the current confident certainty, which presently masquerades as biblical or medical expertise, will look ridiculous, cruel, and even horrifying. We are doing the best we can with what we know right now. When I grew up, they told me the best thing that you could eat for breakfast was bacon and eggs. And we did that for a generation. Everybody started falling out of heart attacks. And they said, no, you shouldn't eat that anymore. Uh, it was the best information that we had at the time. And there's a sense in which, to whatever degree that we come to these conversations, we need to recognize we should come with that kind of... Uh, of humility. And so now we, we ask the question, what is mental illness? Uh, and I've, I've given you a definition here that comes from the DSM-5. Uh, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition, from the APA. It's kind of the uh, dictionary of mental illness. Uh, it's also a great place to flip through. Just It's a verbal rendition of a family album. You can go through and find just about every member of your family in there. Um, it, but this is the closest thing uh, to an agreed-upon definition uh, for mental illness. It's a little wordy, but I think it's worth us hearing. 
A mental disorder is a syndrome. Again, I think that word syndrome, we're going to come back, define it, contrast it with something else in a bit. I think it's an important word. Is a syndrome characterized by clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition, emotional regulation, or behavior that reflects a dysfunction in psychological, biological, or developmental processes underlying mental functioning. Mental disorders are usually associated with significant distress in social, occupational, or other important activities. Uh, an expectable or cultural approved response to a common stress, just mean the way we would normally respond. I don't know why you've got to use the big language there. Uh, such as the death of a loved one is not a mental disorder. Uh, socially deviant behavior that's political, religious, or sexual. And conflicts that are primarily between the individual and society are not mental disorders. Unless the deviance or conflict results from a dysfunction in the individual as described above. Clear as mud? Problem solved. Question answered. Let's all go home. Um, it, but that's the diagnostic and statistical manual definition. It's the closest thing to an agreed upon definition. Now, if you begin to go to other sectors, uh, very reputable sectors, you'll get different nuances of that definition. I'm not going to read the other definitions to you, but just uh, when you go to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, when you read their definition, uh, they, they choose to emphasize uh, that it's a medical condition. Uh, that's where they come from on that. If you go to the Mayo Clinic and you read their definition, they, uh, they take care to differentiate mental illness from normal emotional struggles. Uh, Matthew Stanford, who writes a, a good Christian book on mental illness, uh, if you read his work, uh, he tries to emphasize uh, that mental illness is located uh, exclusively in the physical organ of the brain. Um, if you read the National Institute on Mental Illness, uh, they try to emphasize that not everything that happens in the brain is a mental illness. So you can have a stroke and other things that significantly impact brain functioning, and that would be different from a mental illness. And you begin to see there's not bold differences, uh, but there are some differences. Uh, but before we look at that, kind of what's the one thing that all of these definitions have in common? Um, well, they say we experience mental illness when we have a significant impairment in our life functioning. When the things that we experience in the way that we think or the emotions that we have hampers our ability to do our job, to relate to people, to enjoy our day. Now, um, it, uh, we ask the question, where do these differ? Um, and one of the first places that these definitions begin to differ uh, is, is mental illness an exclusively brain-organ disorder. Uh, some of them want to say mental illness is exclusively in this three-and-a-half-pound organ that sits in my skull. Um, I, I, me personally, uh, prefer not to think of mental illness exclusively that way uh, for several reasons. One, there's just too many instances of things like depression uh, that are rooted in our glandular system. Uh, that have to do with the thyroid and other uh, parts of our body. Um, often the brain-only brain focus, uh, it focuses exclusively on neurotransmitters. Uh, as if we can just get that cocktail quite right, then everything's going to be fine. And it neglects neural pathways. And you're going, please, nerd boy, relax. Relax. Uh, but neural pathways, it's just that process of habituation. When you kind of do the same thing over and over again and you don't even have to think about it, there's just kind of a neural pathway that uh, the, the electronics that go on, they just hit that rut and they go with it. And normally when we're talking about brain-based struggles, we're not talking about habituation and neural pathways, we're just talking about neurotransmitters. Uh, the role of genetics, uh, which goes far beyond just the way we were born. Uh, when you study genetics right now, one of the areas that they're emphasizing significantly is called epigenetics. And it just means the choices that we make and the stresses that we are under determine which genes are active, how much they're active. And, and so uh, to simply say, I was born that way, 
with most of the things that we want to call mental illness uh, tends to be an oversimplification of the genetic aspect. Another thing that I don't like about the brain-only view of it is it tends to reduce humanity to our frontal lobe. Um, you know, right here, this little part of our brain where you get headaches when you listen to lectures that are too technical, um, that becomes the totality of what it means to be human because that's the part of our brain that is most distinct from other animals. And, and we begin to reduce our humanity to right here. Uh, and I think there is a much more total body soulishness to our humanity that can't be reduced to the frontal lobe. It, uh, and then also brain-only focus can tend to distract us uh, from things like sleep and diet and exercise uh, that have an impact on the brain and many other parts of the body. Um, now, a second area where those definitions tend to contrast is some want to use the word syndrome, Others want to use the word disease. And you go, really? That's the kind of technicality we're going to tease apart? I do. I think it's a worthwhile distinction to examine. What is a syndrome? It is a cluster of symptoms that come together that we don't definitively know why. We just know they often cluster together enough that it is beneficial for us to name them so that we can begin to interact with that cluster of symptoms. A disease is when you have a cluster of symptoms with a clear and identifiable cause. And so you'll notice in the DSM, uh, the most technical of them, they refer to mental illness as a syndrome. Because they say there's this collection of symptoms that tend to come together, and we, we don't really know why. And the DSM itself intentionally avoids answering the why question in most of those because different counselors, different counseling approaches, that's kind of what they do. And all of the counselors wouldn't use the book if it didn't support their why. So it is descriptive of what? And that's why they use the word syndrome. Now you say, uh, why is that important? Um, I think it's maybe two reasons. One, if we use disease, it can sometimes give a sense of false hope about how much medication by itself can be expected to alleviate all of the symptoms that we're experiencing. Again, I hope from tonight you get a sense that I'm medication neutral. Neither pro nor con on medication. Uh, but I think there can be a time when we view mental illness exclusively as a disease. Uh, that we think medication alone is what's going to be resolved. And then, um, sometimes it, it doesn't allow us to use medication for symptom alleviation in the healthy sense of that. You know, sometimes if we say medication, it just alleviates symptoms. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, if I've got a headache because the neighbor's kid's playing the drums too loud, I don't mind that Tylenol alleviates my symptoms. Kind of glad for that. Um, but sometimes we downplay that role uh, as if it would be a bad thing. Now, so we come to the point uh, that I'm going to offer Brad's definition. Okay? Again, I don't pretend this to be the definition of the Summit Church. I want you to feel free to disagree with me. I'm going to bring five people up here. I want them to disagree with me. It is nerd candy to have five people like this who are going to critique uh, this kind of presentation. So this is, I want to humbly put this forth as Brad's definition. Mental illness is a life struggle which is common to all people. Again, it, it's not as if it goes in this basket of things that are totally different from what everybody else experiences. It's on a spectrum and it just crosses a threshold. Well, what threshold is that? Uh, that is significantly, that means the degree of its impact, and persistently, the duration of its influence, impairing an individual's mental, social, or emotional ability to function. With the exception of responses to trauma, and again, trauma is just more than we're prepared to go through at a time, and there are many aspects of what's called mental illness that are normal responses to abnormal circumstances. So I'm kind of taking mental illness and, or trauma and saying with the exception to responses to trauma, this impairment is beyond a normal response to life circumstances. 
the strengths and weaknesses associated with particular personality qualities uh, and aptitudes are not a part of mental illness. That's paragraph one. Paragraph two, mental illness can have its cause in the physical body. That could be our brain chemistry, uh, our habituated neural pathways, our genetics, our glandular system, even viral and bacterial infections can often have an impact on our experience of mental illness. Uh, Environmental causes, that can be trauma, poor socialization, an abusive or neglectful home environment, uh, personal choices, uh, that can be the consequences of sinful or foolish decisions that exist on a spectrum uh, from isolated bad choices with really big decisions or the kinds of things that we do over and over again until they have a cumulative effect. Or it can be a combination of those things. So the primary declaration made by the term mental illness is that outside help is needed. Uh, that the passing of time is unlikely to produce the desired decrease in symptoms. Just waiting for this to take care of itself, uh, the, the struggle has become persistent and is interfering with life, that that is no longer the wise and best course of action. Based on this definition, again, just Brad's definition of mental illness, any number of soul, body, physician, counselors may be relevant and effective in assisting the process of change. A mental illness may be a true disease, a syndrome, or the consequence of life choices or circumstances. And so, my definition is admittedly broad, uh, because I think the way that the term is used is broad, and if we don't allow for that, we're going to create artificial debates. Now, I give you in here the things that I'm trying to emphasize with that definition, so that you can look at it, Uh, but I want to give us a sample exercise This is your chance to kind of play with what you're learning. Uh, You have a very nice Venn diagram. Uh, This is kind of that point where we said this is one of those anchor spots in the presentation where you begin to think through what we're talking about. And then uh, I give you a whole bunch of mental illness labels. This is not the time to try to expand uh, your mental illness vocabulary. If you look at some of these and you don't know what they mean, just pass them. Uh, But take a look at them and see where you would begin to place each one of these in the area of, is this caused by my physical body? Is this caused by my environment? Is this caused by the choices I make, the beliefs that I have, the values that I hold? Is it caused by those things that are in the realm of my volition or control? Where would I put it? You know, the fact that my kids love to play with fire and I call them little pyromaniacs, where does that go? Um, sleep disorders, where would those go? Um, Hallucinations, narcissism, uh, postpartum depression, Asperger's, anorexia, um, bipolar, gambling. Where would I begin to place these? Well, I hope what you begin to see is they don't all go in the same place. Uh, Some of them, uh, if we reflect on it, uh, at least from my perspective, very naturally begin to find their home predominantly in one of these circles. And so, post-traumatic stress. I would say that clearly goes in the environmental circle. There is a trauma that I experience that has lasting imprinting influence upon me. Uh, And we ask, where is the cause for that? It's in the trauma that I went through. Uh, When somebody, again, just using a fictitious example, when somebody holds me at gunpoint in a parking lot and that experience significantly changes my emotions, okay, that's an environmental cause. Substance abuse. With substance abuse, in the causal, in the starting stages, there has to be choice. Nobody accidentally becomes an addict. There is a sense in which you are doing something enough times that you begin to use that substance to escape from stressors of life. You are making choices that bring you to a spot that this becomes life-dominating. Postpartum depression. I think it clearly goes in the area of physical, of body. Uh, There is both the changes that happen with pregnancy and with delivery and the sleep deprivation uh, of having an infant and the recovery process that, okay, that... I think we very naturally place that in the physical arena. Now, there's some of these that tend to fit in the overlapping area. Again, this may require a little more thought and reflection, but antisocial personality. 
there's a strong element of choice, uh, but almost invariably there is a very harsh upbringing that goes on in these situations uh, where we see some conditioning influence uh, that you ha- it is survival of the fittest. And if I'm not the fittest, and uh, adhering to the social norms is something that is a detriment to me, and I learned that just doesn't win. Um, attention deficit disorder. I think as we look at that, there's both an aspect of biology and environment involved. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder. As you look at it, there's uh, a lot of evidence of brain physiology that can be different when this is a struggle, but also a lot of personal choices and values and beliefs as there's usually a, a superstitious quality that goes on in what's happening. And others, we look and it's just kind of, it could be any one of these, it could be all three. I mean, you take depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, it can fit in any of those areas or any combinations of them. And so, you know, we begin to think, why talk about this? Uh, why, if, it's, if it's this complicated, if it's not going to be that clear cut, what, what would happen if the church just ignored this subject? And I think there's several things worth stating if the church ignores this subject. Uh, the stigma related to mental illness would be reinforced. It remains one of those things you just don't talk about. Um, an excellent opportunity for that resource that the church should be would be negated. Um, the, the discussion of mental illness would grow more professional and secular. Which in many circles means inaccessible. Because professional often means uh, you have insurance that allows you to access a third-party reimbursed provider, and that usually just tends to be the privileged offered crust of society who have access to that, but oftentimes those who struggle the most with mental illness aren't able to access that, and so our ability to be salt and light for those that that we want to reach, and us included, um, don't have access to that people would begin to live as if God had a little concern for their emotions, uh, especially the unpleasant ones. And because of that, uh, we would miss an important opportunity to disciple people on how to engage with sin and suffering in our world. So I think that's why we've got to engage a conversation that's just not going to be as clear-cut as we want it to be. Uh, Now from this point forward, I want us to try to answer four questions. You'll see them there on the top of page 9. Um, which is, how do we know, how, how would we begin to see if something was primarily or predominantly caused or influenced by biology, environment, or volition? What are the spiritual ramifications that exist for each of those? What's a good process for thinking through a decision about medication? Uh, and how should the church be involved for caring with those who have mental health struggles? So let's pick up the first of those. Uh, How would we begin to tell? Uh, And you'll see I give you some headings with just some key indicators. These aren't hard and fast. They aren't absolute. They aren't everything that you need to know. Uh, But I think they give you a starting point for thinking through this. Volitional causes. Well, is this the natural consequence to a sinful, uh, that is immoral, or foolish, unwise choice? If I can look and say what I am struggling with is the direct result of a choice, then the cause is in the volitional realm. Or maybe it's the result of an overcommitment in order to please people or achieve a goal that is unrealistic. Um, How many of us wear us to the point that we feel like we're about to lose our mind uh, because we're trying to do too much to please people or achieve goals that just we're trying to get there faster than we can? Or a lack of clear life systems that allow us to make informed, cohesive decisions. A lot of times people wear themselves to a point of frantic stress because they don't put things like a budget and a schedule in place and they get themselves in absolutely frantically stressed conditions because of the kind of poor life management that they uh, exhibit. Or there could just be a conflict between life goals and temporal choices. Somebody wants to be in a healthy marriage, but they're in a very destructive dating relationship, and they won't break up with this person. It doesn't leave them in a position to that person, and their life continually deteriorates because of it. Uh, That would be something caused in the volitional realm. Uh, Destructive choices that have a cumulative negative effect. 
uh, prolonged inadequate sleep, uh, substance abuse that is uh, damaging to uh, brain cells, uh, struggle uh, with greater self-control uh, that would reduce life's impact. Again, things that we just keep doing over and over again that we know that is going to have a negative influence, but we just lack the self-control or we don't exhibit it, we don't strengthen the will to be able to do that. Or expecting a level of satisfaction and meaning from particular activities uh, that only our relationship with God could provide. Uh, those would be the kinds of things that if we say that is the driving force um, of what is causing our struggle, then we would say this the causal element would be in our volition. Uh, I state that first because I think that tends to be the strong suit of how we think uh, in Christian circles. Uh, now we come and we ask the question, what would be indicators of an environmental cause? Well, the onset of the struggle near a traumatic event or major life transition. If I can say this happened after that major event that was very upsetting and was more than I was prepared to deal with at the time that I had to go through it, there's a good chance there's an environmental cause. Uh, now you notice uh, that I put family history under environmental and biological cause. Uh, because if you talk about it, a family history uh, with a social worker, they're probably more likely to look at your family history. If you talk about uh, the family history with a the physician, they're probably more likely to think uh, of uh, genetic influences. Um, again, there's that tendency that we all have to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, the answer that we are most prone to give, that's what we think fits. We all do that. But a family history that models unhealthy ways of handling relevant emotions or relationships, uh, the presence of unhealthy or unsafe dynamics in your relationships, Bullying and rejection, especially in the early years when we're building our sense of identity. Physical and emotional stress uh, can be environmental triggers. Again, family situations where I've seen where uh, the family heats their home using an open oven and it creates a carbon monoxide buildup within the house. And that is kind of a low-grade uh, brain deteriorating influence within the home and you begin to see lower levels of self-control and emotional stability. Those are environmental factors that begin to have a physical influence. Biological causes. Again, family history. Uh, David Brainerd, uh, the predecessor to Jonathan Edwards, kind of what Tim Keller is to J.D. Greer, David Brainerd was to Jonathan Edwards. Um, it, he noted uh, that generations of the Brainerd family struggled from uh, a prolonged melancholy, uh, which was their word for depression. Now again, whether that was environmental influences or whether it was genetic influence, he was just saying, hey, I, he was writing in his journal, and they used to publish those things. It wasn't blogs back then. They published journals and books. Um, they just made that observation. The side effect of a disease. Uh, aptitudes and attractiveness uh, impact mental health. If part of mental health has to do with confidence, uh, then those factors uh, do play a role. Onset of struggle after the age of 40 with no prior history of that particular struggle. Again, our bodies just tend to degenerate. If something begins to show up after the age of 40 and it hasn't been there, probably worth talking about. A significant change in an individual's personality with no circumstantial explanation. Um, Chemical imbalances and neural pathways. Um, again, I wish we had uh, the physiological test for that. Um, unfortunately, at this point, our prescriptive sciences are just ahead of our diagnostic sciences. We don't have body fluid sample tests, whether that be uh, saliva or blood or urine or spinal tap that can give us what's going on in those synapses that exist between the neurons in our brain. Uh, and even how we would measure chemical balance. I mean, would most of us agree we wake up chemically imbalanced? Uh, and until we have that first cup of coffee, we're pretty chronically imbalanced. And then something about that kind of unfogs the system. And, and there's this sense of when we get really excited, our brain is activated one way. And then we have these very peaceful, kind of chill moments when our brain is... And in the midst of that, where is balance? Um, and so... Um, you know, there's aspects where 
I think we should pray for our research scientists and say, God, give them great wisdom in how we can measure these things better and define what they would be. Um, general health factors like stamina and weight and strength and diet. I mean, one of the things I think that we miss is how much what we eat would impact our brain chemistry. Where do the constituent parts of chemical balance come from? It comes from what we eat. We can't eat a junk diet and then expect our body to have the raw material to produce uh, chemical equilibrium. Uh, and so again, that's where I think just a broader uh, perspective on this conversation is helpful. Now if you ask me, why are we looking at this? Main reason would be, it helps us assess where we can gain the most traction. Um, as we identify where the predominant cause or influence is, it's going to help us see where should we begin to target our first interventions to have the greatest influence. Now, uh, in terms of spiritual ramifications for each of these, uh, you can go through and, and look at some of the passages and key principles. I'll, uh, I'll overview them for you. Uh, in the area of volition, uh, what are some of the things that we would draw in terms of scriptural or gospel implications? Each individual must bear the responsibility for any choice he or she makes. You know, Ezekiel 18, it's where there's this uh, proverb that I'm translating it for us, that uh, there was a proverb in Israel that says, if the mom and dad eats lemons, then um, you know, the kids get stink face. Um, that's a new international version of the uh, proverb. Uh, but basically, God through the prophet Ezekiel says, don't say that anymore. That, that should not be said in Israel. Each person is responsible for the choices that they make. Uh, there is forgiveness available for the guilt and shame associated with any destructive choice. Uh, not just forgiveness, but there is an identity available as a child of God that is stronger than the shame associated with any choice. Uh, God empowers every Christian to make healthy, righteous choices in any circumstance. And we are never tempted beyond what we are able uh, to, res uh, to resist by the grace of God. And so those would be some of those things in the volitional domain that we say this is some of the ways that Scripture speaks to uh, struggles that might fall under this umbrella of mental illness that are rooted in volition. Uh, what about the area of environment? Well, what are some of the things we would see? Scripture recognizes the validity of our environment's influence upon our choices and emotions. There's just too many passages that talk about those and give those kinds of details. Why did the prodigal son come to his senses? Because there was a famine in the land. He had to kind of hit rock bottom. There were some environmental influences that came to the point of helping him realize that. God calls His people to be salt and light in the environments that need redemption. God expects His people to live in an unbroken environment that's going to have a negative influence on us. Now, God's not sadistic. God also allows, um, even commands at times, individuals to remove themselves from toxic environments. God warns us against automatically interpreting unpleasant circumstances as punishment. Uh, sometimes in the midst of a struggle like this, people will say, why is God doing this to me? What did I do that was so wrong? And it, it is as if this struggle is a form of punishment. God would warn us from making that our default interpretation. God promises to be with us in the midst of hard circumstances. God knows and can sympathize with whatever our circumstances. And God calls His church to be His body and care for individuals in difficult circumstances. Part of God saying you are not alone in this struggle is us having this conversation so that His presence with us can be experienced in the conversations we have with fellow members of the body of Christ. And then we come to what are some of the scriptural and gospel implications of biological influences? Well, one, Scripture recognizes the validity of our body's influence upon our choices and emotions. When Jesus was responding to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, He says, the Spirit is willing 
the flesh is weak. I ask you to stay up and pray. You've just had a very long day preparing for the Passover. You had a high carb meal and some wine. I get it. We're in a quiet, still place. You were praying with your eyes closed. You didn't get what you were praying about to activate the flight or flight response in you like it did in me. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. We are not morally responsible for our biological challenges unless we created them through habituation. Again, there may be a little bit of debate about how much disease and addiction plays into that. Um, it, uh, this would be uh, as best I can study and understand Scripture where I would come to on these matters. Uh, seeking physical aid for biologically based struggles honors God and is wise. It Uh, When you read that passage, Paul talks to Timothy. He says, take a little wine for your stomach uh, because you you seem to, life is stressing you out. Um, And one of the things that we also hear that Paul uh, said to Timothy is don't have a spirit of timidity. So I get the impression uh, that Timothy probably struggled with anxiety to a significant degree that it resulted in a physical reaction in his stomach, probably known as irritable bowel syndrome, uh, and that this was something that, that Paul was trying to give him some practical advice on how to counter the physical effects of that. Uh, scripture places a how value on taking care of our bodies because of how much they influence our souls. We get one of the Ten Commandments on that one. Our biologically based struggles may not find their full redemption in this life. Scripture talks about creation moaning, of which we are a part, for that day of full redemption. Our biologically based struggles will increase as we age and our bodies weaken. Be encouraged. Um, God warns us against interpreting unhealth as punishment. And so again, those are some of the ways that Scripture would speak to uh, those struggles that have a physiological Uh, primary cause or primary influence. And so now, uh, now we come to the question about medication. Again, not because I think it is the most important question, but because I think it is one of those that is a, it is a lightning rod for so many issues around this subject that I think if we can untangle it a little bit, it will take us very far uh, in, in untying the rest of the knot. Now, I think the first aspect of making a well-informed decision about psychotropic medications is placing this decision in the right category. Uh, and, And I would say firmly and confidently, the decision about whether to use psychotropic medications is a wisdom decision, not a moral decision. It is one that is, what is the best fit Uh, for me to feel a full, to live a full and complete life where I can know and enjoy God. And if medications are a part of that, that is not a demerit. If they are not a part of that, that is not a credit. Uh, It is a wisdom decision, not a moral decision. Uh, I'm going to give you six steps. Uh, The preface is, if the struggle that you face is strong enough that you don't feel like you can go through all six steps... Don't feel like this is a popal decree that you have to do it this way. Uh, If you're saying, ah, I'm already taking some of these medications and I didn't go through this. You can think through it retroactively. Uh, My goal here is just as a church in the conversations that we have, that this gives us a way that we can begin to have conversations that you don't have to have the initials MD after your name. To have an informed conversation that helps somebody think through this, they do need to see an MD because if you write the prescription, that's illegal. Um, don't do that. Um, but we can walk with one another in thinking through this through. And so step one, assess life and my struggle. Uh, again, we've talked about there's no body fluid sample test, so we can't just go and say, Doc, is this something with my brain chemistry? Now, if it's glandular, there are a lot more tests for that. Uh, But most often, it is a diagnosis by elimination. Uh, And so, uh, I give you some questions here that you could use both in preparing for an initial doctor's visit and just you thinking through, where is my life? How bad is the struggle? Um, Now, second step, 
is make needed non-medical changes. Um, Here's a kind of a sticky statement. Uh, Medication will never make us healthier than our current choices allow. Our lifestyle is the ceiling for our mental health. Um, I cannot sleep three hours a night and have a good mental health condition. I know we have tried to disprove that with caffeine, and we have all failed miserably. Okay? There are certain lifestyle factors that that is just the ceiling. That's the cap for where my mental health needs to be. You know, trying to use medication uh, to correct um, mental health struggles when I'm not making wise choices is like having a bad diet and trying to correct it with a multivitamin. Um, multivitamin helps. There's nothing wrong with taking a, metal, um, a multivitamin. I'm not condemning multivitamins. There's just a part of the strategy that's not going to be long-term effect because the unhealthiness of my lifestyle is going to create a cumulative mental health struggle that is going to take more and more medication in order to offset, and I am fighting the medication with my lifestyle in a way that's just not going to work. And so let me make those things first. And so a key indicator of whether we are using psychotropic medications wisely is whether A, we are using medication as a tool to assist in making needed lifestyle or relational changes. There may be times in step two when you realize this is harder than I can do. It is more than I feel like I can pull off. If there was an offset of symptoms with medication, it would help me be able to make these changes better. That's great. And you can decide later whether that the changes that you made will hold and stay without the ongoing use of the medication. We'll come to that part in a bit. But using medication to get a leg up on those changes is wonderful. Have no problem with that whatsoever. It's, it's option B where I feel like we begin to go unwise. Using medication as an alternative to making these changes. When I begin to say, I don't want to eat healthy, I just want to take a, med- you know, a multivitamin and that's going to take care of it. I want a Big Mac and a Diet Coke and it'll offset. Um, that doesn't work. Step three. Determine the non-medicated baseline for your mood and life functioning. Uh, This is often a neglected step. Um, And what happens is that we perpetually just want to feel better than we do now. Uh, And before medication, we want to feel better than we do now, so we try medication. And then we get some sense of relief probably from the medication and we just want to feel better than we do now and there's some side effects that we're not crazy about. And so then we get off the medication in order to feel better than we do now, which is then. And, and, we, and we tend to go back and forth and we don't have a baseline and so we wind up being kind of wiggly uh, in the way that we go through this. And so having a baseline is helpful. It, it also allows us not to introduce multiple interventions all at once. Because uh, what people ought to do is they usually get to that point where they're desperate. And part of the benefit of having a step and hopefully more conversations is that we don't wait to the point that we get desperate. And, and we get really down, we hit that point, we go to the doctor, we get some medication, we start improving our diet, we exercise, we talk to friends, we go to counseling. We do all of that and we feel better. And then we go, oh no. Do I have to do all of this for the rest of my life? in order to keep up, and I, I don't know which part did it. In beginning to have some sense of intentionality where we introduce different interventions, not because we're against any of them, but just because we want to be able to see which ones had uh, the largest impact can help us. i give you some questions to help with that. Uh, step four, uh, begin a medication trial. Um, now, I give you some questions here uh, that when you get to this step and you're talking to your physician, be an informed consumer. Okay? Let me explain something. The doctor works for you. Sometimes we forget that with really powerful people like doctors. The doctor works for me. I get to ask him or her questions. Uh, I get to decide. I can even get a second opinion. You know, we, we hear about that on like TV shows where they get upset with the doctor and they go, that 
we want to be we don't want to be oppositional but asking questions what are the different medications available how does each one of those work what do they do that impact the struggle what are the most common side effects how long does it take for this medication to come to its full effect um, if I choose to get off the medication because I don't like how it makes me feel, how would I do that? How would I do that wisely? Uh, what have been the most common things that you've heard other patients say that they either liked or didn't like about this medication? Be an informed consumer. Um, step five. Uh, after you assess the, assess the level of progress uh, against the medication side effects. So again, we set a trial period of how long we're going to do this. My recommendation is at least twice the period of time that it takes for that medication to come to its full effect. Uh, again, as you're looking at that, uh, if you are uh, changing jobs, moving house, um, something like that in the middle of your trial period, um, give yourself some distance from a major life event like that before you go, eh, I guess it's not working. Come on now. Um, it... So again, we assess the level of progress against the medication side effect. Okay, I've got a baseline in step three. I've taken this medication for a period of time. How does how I feel after a period of time to let the medication work compare to how I felt and how I was living when I just made the life choices uh, that were those things that seemed to have the biggest impact on what I was experiencing? Uh, at that point... Uh, you can make a decision. Um, do I want to stay on medication or not? Again, neither pro nor con. Um, your goal is to live a full and enjoyable life. It is neither better nor worse if medication is a part of that optimal life. So then you step six, determine whether to stay on the medication. There are multiple options at this point. You can remain on the medication because the uh, effects are beneficial and the side effects are minimal or worth it. You can stave off of the medication because the benefits were minimal and the side effects were more than you wanted to put up with. You can stage off the medication and see if the progress that you made can be maintained, acknowledging that if not, it's not a sense of failure if I go, this is an important, healthy thing for me. Um, or you can try a different medication based on what you learned in terms of what made that medication helpful or not. All of that in the uh, connection with your physician. Um, but that is what I would view as a healthy and wise process for thinking through the use of psychotropic medications. Hopefully as you hear that, you say, those are conversations that I could have. I wouldn't tell you whether Paxil or Prozac or Zoloft or something like that, but, but I could walk with somebody. I could hear them ask those kinds of questions. I could be a friend on that kind of journey. Um, I wouldn't feel awkward talking about that as if, you know, somehow me doing this meant I didn't love God or I didn't trust Him. I know that there's things in that area of volition that has to do with beliefs and lifestyle um, and values. Yes, challenge me there. If there's aspects of this that are just, it, medication helps me get a leg up or it looks like it's something that's going on with my body, there's, there's no reason to, to not do that. And so now we come to the question uh, about the church. Uh, and how could or should the church be involved? Um, it, in the early part here, part of what I'm trying to say uh, is that most often as a church, as Christians, theology, however we want to view that, oftentimes we don't give superior answers. If somebody has a hypoactive thyroid, and that is impacting their experience of depression, uh, we don't have uh, a Christian alternative to Synthroid that makes that better. Um, now, I think often what we have is a superior context for implementing those solutions. Because if you want to know what drives physicians and counselors nuts, uh, it's, it's when people start with something and they don't finish. Why do they do that? Most often it's because of a sense of shame. They feel like they're doing something wrong. This is something that it had to get that bad before they would begin to do it. If we can create a context where these are things that we can talk about, then the willingness and ability to use those kinds of resources for what they are beneficial, because this is what I've seen happen many times. People privately, and again, have no problem. This 
privately doesn't mean you have to tell everybody everything. But out of a sense of shame kind of privacy, somebody talked to their doctor. Uh, they get on medication because they feel like that's bad. Uh, they get a sense of relief. and They get enough relief that they feel like they can do without it. And, and then, because they don't really want to tell the doctor because the doctor will be upset with them if they get off, they kind of get off the medication quick. And then you have both the initial onset of symptoms, you have the effects of the medication getting off of that too quickly instead of staging, and they crash hard. And then they feel like, ah, medication answers everything. And then anytime anything goes wrong in their life, they're thinking, my medication's not working. I need to go get that adjusted. And whether my medication is working becomes the universal explanation. Um, again, neither pro nor con on medication. Hopefully you can hear and trust me with that. But until we're having these conversations in a safe context, where we can use counseling or medication or other interventions in the way that they're really designed for without shame, we're not going to use them optimally. And then we're probably going to come to the point of over-relying upon them out of secrecy. And so what are some of what we do in the context of a church? Um, you know, just a few things here. Some at the corporate level, some at the individual level. Uh, sermon illustrations. If you want to know one of the things that I really appreciate about our pastor... It's when it feels like to him that there's something that has to do with counseling or mental illness related in the sermon. Uh, he'll tap me and say, hey Brad, can we talk about this? Um, you know, we talk about kind of follow-up blog posts. There's times when he's like, I feel like I'm going to address this. I'm not going to do it justice. I'm going to give it a flyby. Can we do a, a blog post and then kind of tweet that out to the church and that kind of thing so that, so that there's more of a resourcing and a more comprehensive a treatment of it than what I can give in the, the way that I'm going to reference it in a sermon. Uh, testimonies, I give some ideas there. Uh, adult education classes. Um, and just one of the things that I would want us to say about the church. The church is uniquely platformed in a way that there's just not really a comparable alternative in our culture. You know, let me ask you, in our culture, where do you ever get a group of adults to come together because they want to learn? Because they trust one another and they're doing life together? Because they're willing to be vulnerable with one another? Where the only, the only criteria for membership is to admit that we don't have what life takes, uh, that we need something more than we have in one another, and we claim to want to do life together on that journey. Is there anything else like that? Where, where that happens on a regular basis, where, where that could happen across a broad cross-section? I really don't think there is. At the personal level, some things that I would recommend. Just friendship. Uh, friendship is so valuable uh, to remove stigma. Um, relationships that transcend the particular struggle. You know, it, um, I'm not against AA. Uh, one of the concerns that I have is that uh, it, in a way that is more than I would prefer, your struggle becomes your identity and it has to remain that for you to have a sense of supportive community. Uh, you can't graduate from your struggle, not that you never struggle again, but you get to the point where this is not the dominant part of your identity without losing your friends who have been a part of that journey. I love the fact that as a church, we can have friendships that transcend uh, our particular struggles. Helping people sort their struggle. Hopefully that's part of what we got tonight, is just learning to sort our emotional laundry. Um, and sometimes attending counseling with a friend. One of the things that's becoming more popular in counseling circles is having an advocate come and be a part of it. If you've got a friend who's going through counseling, you might just ask. You know, say, hey, if it would be helpful and your counselor's open to it, uh, me coming and just sitting and kind of hearing some messages that I can reinforce and uh, just kind of understanding the process so I can echo that, I'd be okay doing that. Yet, uh, and so when we come to this point, uh, there's just a couple of things uh, that I'd like for us to emphasize. Um, you know, by way of conclusion. Um, and one is to make an exaggerative statement. Um, Christians who say faith only, doctors who say medication only, and counselors who say therapy only, are equally wrong and equally hurtful to those who struggle. It's, 
It's those together. Um, and when it comes to particular struggles, we always want to get to know the person more than the struggle. You know, sometimes people ask me, what does the Bible say about depression? What does the Bible say about bipolar? What does the Bible say about blank? And my caution in answering that is both that the subject is broader uh, than giving a particular answer for, but in answering that question, I feel like I'm training the person I'm talking to for, to miss the person who experiences a particular struggle. And so in this kind of thing, we, we always want to be people who care for people. And what I hope that you've gotten is some tools, some paradigm, even if it felt like a lot of information that you could go back through and say, I feel like this helps me sort through physical causes, environmental causes, volitional causes, how Scripture would begin to speak to those, uh, the way that medication would be used wisely if it was needed so that that doesn't become some kind of stigmatizing, deal-breaking, awkward part of the conversation. And that I could be the body of Christ coming alongside of somebody uh, or inviting people to come and walk alongside of me when this kind of struggle is a part of our life. And so with that being said, I'd like to pray for us uh, and then uh, transition us over to the panel discussion time. Lord, we come to you. And um, Lord, as much as anything, as much as Venn diagrams and information, um, Lord, would you just use this time to remove stigma, uh, to give us the courage to be more meaningfully a part of our li- each other's lives. Give us the courage to invite other people into our lives in areas that uh, have felt uh, off limits if we would do that. It's your name we pray. Amen.